script is not finished until you've spoken it. We sat in a little glass room and you made me bark. Do you remember that? Like a little dog? Yes, yes. Um, the little... <laughs> Everybody thought we were crazy. The important thing is to make mistakes. If you're starting out, you, you honestly don't really know what you're doing until you've done it. Hello, I'm Elspeth Morrison and I'm a voice coach and I've worked with broadcast journalists for nearly 20 years and today I'm going to give you a masterclass on how to use your voice to its fullest potential on air. Hello and welcome to the masterclass. I'm Louisa Lim and I teach journalism at the University of Melbourne. Every week we're going to have a master of audio journalism talking through one aspect of the craft. This week we're talking about using your voice with Elspeth Morrison. Elspeth and I have a long history together as she trained me years ago before I went to Beijing for the BBC. Give us some examples of people who sound really good on air and why they sound good on air. What are the strategies that they're doing that make them sound good? Before I talk about who's good on air, it depends what criterion you're judging people's goodness by. So as a voice coach, people often spend time coming to me telling me that so-and-so's got a marvellous voice, that aren't they great, they've got a marvellous voice and I'm going to like them. And then I work with this person and I kind of think, oh, I don't like them. What it is, for my personal taste, and this might not be your personal taste, if somebody's got an incredibly beautiful voice in a news context, it actually, for me, slightly distracts from the message. So in news, my criteria for having a good voice is having one that communicates without too many vocal ticks. So what you're doing, you're thinking about their content, you're thinking about what they're saying, rather than how they're saying it. That the voice is just a lovely carrier of the message, or just a carrier of the message, rather than getting in the way of the message. So for example, on BBC Radio 4, over the years, there've been a number of people who talk in voices like this, which is absolutely delightful. But when I've done a little anecdotal test with journalist students about comparing that sort of rather marvellous voice, but with a rather flat read, with other people who have a sort of more kind of brighter, more chatty tone, the students, these 18-year-olds, report that they like the sound of the lovely voice, but they take more information from the other voice, which isn't getting in the way of the story. So... With that in mind, I like very much like somebody like Michel Hussein on the BBC, who I think is clear. I think this is what makes a good voice, doesn't matter what accent you've got. But she's clear, she's easy to understand, she's appropriate in terms of tone and mood for the story she's telling. So if it's a frowny voice story, let's call it one where, you know, people have been killed and there's no good outcome. She'll have this sort of tone. She'll brighten up for other stories that need a sort of brighter tone, say something about the government's doing something, um, or she might even go to a kind of smileier tone if something quite, a, a sports person has done something rather marvellous. So change of tone is very important and where you put your emphasis and being appropriate for the story you're telling. Those are the key things 
for me. Good evening. Three days after a devastating cyclone hit the coast of Bangladesh, aid agencies have revealed that the death toll could be as high as 10,000 people. The cyclone's been described as a national calamity after hitting coastal areas and affecting some 2.7 million people. The floods it triggered have damaged more than 700,000 homes, and the Red Crescent charity now fears that between 5 and 10,000 people have died. I mean, one of the things I think Michelle Hussein does with her voice is that she always sounds quite authoritative. She always sounds like she knows what she's talking about. How important is that? I think authority comes from sounding like you know what you're talking about. And that comes from getting the right mood and tone for the story. You know, it's no good sort of saying something like, well, you'll hear this. Missing teenager Sally Smith's body has been found. No, 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 no. If missing teenager's body has been found, we need a sort of a tone where there's a frown in the voice. So getting the tone for the story is really, really crucial. Getting the emphasis in the in the right place rather than the wrong place is very crucial as well. That helps give you authority. So, for example, a lot of people in news tend to fall into what I describe as noun stress, where when they're talking, what they tend to do is put emphasis in places that in real life you simply wouldn't do because that would be wrong in some way. It's quite hard to actually get it that wrong, but I'm sure you've heard people doing maybe every fourth word they just bash away and it's not just noun stress it's just weird stress frankly nobody speaks like that so what do you do when you're starting off how do you go about getting it right if I'm doing my first big story what should I do so that I can try and sound as authoritative as I can I think the first thing is right for speech if you're doing your first big story and or even your first small story because a really good idea is to start small. Start somewhere when, you know, the middle of the night, take strange shifts that nobody else wants and do things in the middle of the night where you can have a go and it's actually properly on air, but no one's going to get too concerned about it. The, the important thing is to make mistakes. If you're starting out, you honestly don't really know what you're doing until you've done it. It's much easier than driving a car where if you get it all wrong, you know, it could end in disaster. But, you know, making a few errors in speech aren't actually going to kill you. But it does feel a bit like driving a car, first of all, when you're trying to get the balance right of how you're going to speak. So right for speech. This is something people don't do. We, we get rather constrained into sort of writing for print or online. We write silently in our heads that is handed to somebody else to read silently in their head. And what you need to do for broadcast is to write how you would say it, but in a relatively formal way. It's, what do I call it? Kind of formally informal or informally formal. You choose, whichever you want to do. I sometimes describe it as the sort of language you'd use if you're talking to an old relation you haven't seen for quite some time and you like them, but you want to show you're communicative, but you might change your language, you might change your style. So instead of, you know, let's say you meet old Aunt Grace at a wedding, instead of saying, um, as you would to your mates, you've come up on the A426 road and it's a nightmare. And to your friends, you might say, bloody hell, that road, it's a nightmare, isn't it? That road, what a pain in the ass. We got trapped at Junction 42. If you're meeting Aunt Grace, you might go, oh, that road, isn't it terrible? Shocking, isn't it? The A246, did you get stuck? No, we got stuck as well. Oh, I know, it's a shocking road. So 
you see there? Cunningly. I slightly altered my language and my tone of voice. I'm not sure it was quite right for news, but you get the idea. One of the traps that people fall into, and I know that I'm guilty of doing it myself, is just kind of falling into that sing-song rhythm that you always hear. Now, how do you stop that from happening? Okay, the sing-song rhythm that you often hear on the news. Um, <laughs> I was working with a couple of people last week who were doing just this sort of thing. It's fine <laughs> for probably about the first two sentences, and then you want to jump off a cliff, because frankly it's quite boring and you're not listening anymore. You mean that one? That's the one. <laughs> now, the thing is, that's like an infection. People have caught that because they think that's how you do the news. And fair enough... It's better than talking in a monotone because really nobody would listen if you just talked on the same note for a really long time like you don't care. That's no good at all. So in the interests of being interesting, people just add random stuff. The thing about that is because it's random, it doesn't make much sense. So this is why picking out particular words to say, like I just did there, you see what I did there? If I pick out particular words in a sentence, if your voice arcs towards a particular sound and then it kind of falls away, if my voice arcs towards a particular sound and then just simply goes up and then comes down, it's not very interesting. But if my voice arcs towards a particular sound and then falls away, you can be more interesting. Do you see what I did there? So particular and more, I picked out two words just to lob at you and that tends to break the rhythm. So you would sit there and you would underline your script, would you? You'd sit there, you'd speak your... I can't say this enough. I'm, like, proper boring on the topic of this. But you can't speak your script enough. You just need to keep saying it out loud. I mean, really old broadcasters that I've worked with, you see them scribbling right up to the last minute. I mean, a script is not finished until you've spoken it. That is when the script is finished. That's the time it's finished because you might even embellish and change a bit depending what you're doing. So like a, a voice piece or oh, the news itself, the news reading would be more formal, but presenters, presenters doing cues and links, they're scribbling it right until the last minute because they know that even though this is scripted possibly by somebody else, this cue or this link is written by somebody else, they've got to own it and make it sound like themselves in some way, shape or form. Just going back to authority for one minute, the other thing that makes you sound authoritative, as well as getting, breaking up the rhythm, is doing a falling inflection at the end. Now, what I mean by that is there's, uh, don't do it all the, if I do it all the time, it's not gonna sound very great. This is me doing a falling inflection at the end all the time. And again, anything repetitive will stop you listening after a while. OK, there's a tendency with some younger speakers in all sorts of accents of English to do a kind of up glidey thing at the end. And in news, if I continue to talk like this all the way through, probably <laughs> I'm not going to have much authority. You're not going <laughs> to deem me to actually know what I'm talking about. Oh, it's driving me crazy. <laughs> oh, wait, I don't mean to drive you completely crazy. But the thing to know is there are some accents that naturally have a bit of upglide at the end. Now, in the UK, there's a myth that all Australians go up all the time. And I know factually Australians actually don't. In the UK, though, there are accents that definitely... And there are, there are people that go up, but there are not particularly accents... 
But I'll give you an example, like in Liverpool, a lot of the accents in Liverpool, this is an English UK accent of Liverpool, they definitely go up at the end. And in, wait a minute, Belfast, Northern Ireland, they have a wee upglide at the end as well. And so if I'm working with people from Liverpool or Belfast, the only thing, the only accent tweak I would make is to suggest for news that they actually go down at the end when they've finished. This is Elspeth Morrison, BBC News. I was going to ask you about the whole regional accent question. I know that often we've all heard stories of people being told to tone down their accents. Uh, In the UK, Scottish people, Australians as well. In the US, people with southern accents told they just don't sound authoritative enough. So, I mean... In that kind of scenario, what do you do? Because as you said, your accent is you, it's your calling card, and yet your accent could be the thing that is perceived to be stopping you from getting on air. I think you've got to change your job and work for different people if that's the case, because it's it's just factually inaccurate. Um, any views about an one accent being lower or worse than any other is totally socially constructed. Okay, it's just opinion. It's not fact. So we know that views on accents are totally socially constructed. The only thing about accents is that whatever your accent, everybody's got an accent. Here's the thing. Nobody's accentless, but it needs to be clear for broadcast. There's no good doing your sort of, you know, like if I go to like a really sort of casual version of my accent, make it really sort of messy. You can't see me on, you know, the the national news talking about this. Not because the accent's so wrong, but because the clarity just sounds like I've had a little drink, doesn't it? That would be the wrong thing. But I could use this accent with great sort of, if it was clear, what would be the problem with broadcasting with this sort of accent? There wouldn't be. But it's just social prejudice. So people need to get over their bloody selves and let lots of accents on her because lots of people speak in different ways. Well, I also wanted to ask about the whole question of kind of speech impediments of various sorts, because, again, that's something that makes you distinctive, but it also can be problematic. I don't know if you remember, but when you trained me, one of my problems was this weak R. And we spent a lot of time sitting. Do you remember we sat in a little (laughs) glass room and you made me bark? Do you remember that? Like a little dog? The barking exercise. Everybody thought we were crazy, right? Yes. Yes. Um, the little... <laughs> um, yes, that's an interesting one, because I think in terms of my practice, I've got less, as a coach, I've got less fussy about things like that. Depends who you're working for in terms of what people notice. So sometimes I work with people who say, oh, I've been told I've got a terrible lisp. And I look at them and I go... I've been listening to them for 10 minutes. I go, you haven't got a terrible list. They said, but my boss tells me I've got a terrible list. Speech impediments are in the ear of the beholder to some extent. It's quite interesting because some English people swear they can't understand any Scottish accents. Well, that's not a speech impediment, that's an accent. But I've heard English people, idiots, frankly, saying, oh my, oh my goodness, he's Scottish. I can't understand a word he's saying. And they're just people with lazy ears. Frankly, so there's the lazy ear factor. Oh, you've got me started now. The lazy ear factor, uh, and just being used to sounds around you. We can mostly get used to sounds around us. Before people go on air, do you have exercises that you think people should do to warm up their voices? In news, on the whole, 
there isn't much time. I mean, this is one of my specialist skills. Um, and I work with actors that are working in theatre that need to really get their voice out into big spaces and aren't mic'd. And that's different. They do need to properly warm up. News people on the whole haven't got time or the mental capacity to do warm ups because <laughs> they're so busy thinking about content. But for those that do and for those that are on early or late, there are a couple of things to think about. One is if you're on an early and you're driving into work is for goodness sake, speak or sing before you go on air. I have occasion to work with guys that, well, one guy said to me one time, he said, I go on air in the morning and my voice is like... I go on air in the morning and my voice is really croaky. And I said, well, how do you warm up? How do you get in? He said, well, I arrived at... Well, he arrived at 10 to 6, had a cigarette, a Mars bar and a coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Hadn't spoken to anyone and then was vaguely surprised his voice didn't work very well and he was in his 50s. And here's the thing, had been drinking the night before. So a warmer, if you know you're going to use your voice the next day, up until about the age of about 25, you can party like a demon and have one hour sleep and sound fine the next morning. And then after that, anecdotal evidence, it's all downhill. So if you've got a heavy voice use day, you really need to start thinking about it the day before. And anecdotally... I hear from more and more people that wine and beer really affects their voice the next day. They're a bit croaky and a bit froggy and it takes a while for the inflammation and the phlegm to clear. Whereas spirits don't have the same effect for some people. So it's worth experimenting. But if you've got a voice, heavy voice day, you need to start thinking the day before. Make sure you're getting plenty of hydration down you. That's not alcoholic hydration Some coaches will say, just drink water, but you can get it from fruit and vegetables as well. You know, eat a, have a healthy-ish diet. If you do sound a bit froggy, like, look, I can put it on. If if you do, so this is my morning, morning, morning voice. There's a little bit of croak there because I've been lying down and the phlegm has pooled, let's say. Do you hear what I did there? I did a little breath in and I actually set up, sat up a little bit straighter and beating your chest lightly. So these are some prep things you can do if you're a bit froggy in the morning or you're going a bit froggy because you're doing a late. I'm talking froggy or croaky in the throat. Beating yourself on the chest, humming a little song. I'm suggesting things that make you don't not make you look too mad to your colleagues, but just sitting at state straight and taking a breath in that makes your ribs swing out can help your voice warm up a bit. Um, you can do things like stretching your lips right to the forward, then right to the side. You can get yourself some little tongue twisters like Peter Piper, Pick to Pecker, Pickle Peppers. But the most important thing for warming up your voice is speaking before you go on air. A lot of people just work in total silence and then go on air and then wonder why. Oh, yes, by... The fifth time I've spoken, my voice sounds good. No, you've got to be prepared. And the listeners, frankly, don't care if you're tired. Um, Your job is to sound awake. They really don't, they're not interested in your sad life. So your job is to sound a bit perky. So there was just one other sort of vocal tick that I wanted to ask you about, and it's something that you hear quite a lot with young people, but that whole vocal fry, the croaky voice syndrome, do you think that detracts from the authority or is it one of those social constructions? God, I've read so much on this. The take on vocal fry. Okay, so a lot of the spotlight seems to shine on young women doing the fry thing. 
And one of the biggest fryers, global fryers around is Kim Kardashian. Well, Google alerts anymore on myself. I did, but I, I haven't in a couple of years. So Tumblr's in fact love. Mie.tumblr.com. Never seen before, so it's always fun to look. Best selfie taker. Selfies. Half and half. A million times. Game. Days. Hack him. Like ever. Laugh. I, I forget exactly how it goes. MySpace. I loved it. Launched my website. Getting it ready. Mail thing. Day. Like in the world now. It's a kind of gender thing because the, the, the light seems to be shining on younger women and frying and not being clear or being too high-pitched or something. Whereas, in fact, in the UK, a lot of very upper-class men also use fry. That kind of, and fry by fry, I mean, that quote, I mean, that sort of, I can barely be bothered to speak. And the criticism isn't on them. So it, it seems another kind of gender-bashing excuse. Women do this, but actually posh men in the UK, a lot of them do it too, sort of just talk about the bottom of their age or just kind of rattle. And no one seems to be too bothered about that. It's not the clearest sound. Here's a thing, having said the social bit, it can sound like you're disengaged. And why would you want to sound like you're disengaged? But I don't think it's just a very clear sound. I don't think for news it's useful. So actors use it as real people. Real people can use it all they like. But in news, you've got to be you and 10% more. And that probably means, because we, that style shifting thing, we're probably giving a bit more oomph to our sound. So if I deliver the news in a, some stuff's happened, here are the headlines. It sounds like I've got a poorly voice. So it's not that helpful for delivering a clear message. But I don't like the way the torch is being shone on young women and they are the only ones doing it because a lot of different social strata and men are at it. You've put a lot of emphasis on talking about tone and about situational voice use, finding the right voice for the right moment. And it seems that now there's a kind of differentiation that's emerging between broadcast voice and podcast voice. Is that something you've noticed? I think the difference between, if you like, news or radio voice and podcast voice, essentially, is podcast is you. It's personal, it's you. You're not playing any sort of character. Even a presenter, say, on a breakfast show, for example, they're being themselves, they're employed to be themselves, but they're actually working for somebody else. And possibly, you know, they're not doing everything they want to do in the show because the producer has come in with some stuff they've got to cover. So they're not always covering what they want to cover uh, on radio or in news. Whereas in a podcast that's your podcast, it's your stuff. It's stuff you want to do. It's not somebody telling you or the station telling you you've got to do this. You're putting it out there in the ether. So the conceit is that you're just chatting. The conceit in radio and news is that you're just chatting, but even more in podcast, you want to sound more like yourself. Now, sounding like yourself, but you have to be a slightly animated version of yourself. I would put less energy in my voice for a podcast at the same time as making myself sound interested. My gosh, it's a complex business, frankly, but you have to experiment. Can you give two top tips for people starting off in voice use? My two top tips are write for speech and practice it out loud and say it like you mean it. Say it like you're interested. Say it like you care. Whatever that means to you, that's what you need to do. 
you have a task that you could set for listeners? Take a news story from a newspaper that's written in a fairly formal fashion and translate it into 30 seconds of speech. How would you rewrite that? Maybe rewrite it as a cue, write it as if you were going to introduce somebody talking about it. How would you make it sound like you'd want to carry on listening? And think about the tone of the story. Where does it sit on the frowny, smiley or concerned spectrum of things? Where does it fit or anywhere in there? And think about what words you need to emphasise, what words we really need to hear in order to get the most goodness out of that story. And think about your pace as well. Think about, do you need to put in a pause? Do you need to let people think? Do you need to let that thought land? Think about that you want people to listen to this and record yourself and listen back to it. Now, just one final thing to say. On the whole, if you're doing news, don't ask friends and family for feedback. Why? Because they know you as you and in a news on-air environment, you probably won't sound like quite like yourself, but neither will they because it's your work voice. But if you followed your friends and family at work, they would have a work voice too. The thing is that yours is in public, so you might and probably will sound different to how you normally sound. You can check out your podcast voice with friends and family because you should sound like yourself. But new stuff, you probably won't. There's a thought. That's such an interesting thought. Thank you so much for your time, Elspeth. That was fascinating. Oh, no, it's great. It was great fun. The Masterclass is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla and Ruby Schwartz. It's recorded in the Hallwood Recording Studio by Gavin Neighbour. The original concept is by Anders Furs. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. And it's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening.